0: Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back with uh, John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about Congress, the dynamics of Congress, uh, the Senate being under one administration, under the leadership of one party and the House under another. We want to talk about that. But first of all, I want to sort of catch up on what John is doing. John has written a number of books. A uh, number of uh, very interesting books, including some uh, fantasy novels that uh, I have not read yet. I'm looking forward to, but also some other great books. Uh, for example, a great book called Jim Martin and the Rise of the North Carolina Republicans uh, and uh, our best foot forward investment plan for North Carolina's economic recovery. John, are you working on any other books right now?
0: Well, my next book will be the third in my uh, historical fantasy series. Uh, The the first two books, Mountain Folk and Forest Folk, uh, are set in the Revolutionary War period and the War of 1812 period, respectively. And my third novel in the series, which is called Water Folk, will depict the Texas War of Independence, the Alamo, and the Mexican-American War. It's not all about war, but those, those are good ways to think about the time periods.
1: How long does it take you to write a fantasy novel like that? Oh, several months.
0: Uh, I mean, you've got to do a lot of research. I mean, some of it is fantasy. I'm making things up, obviously. But because it's historical fantasy, a lot of it is very deeply researched. I'm right now researching the composition of the walls of different parts of the Alamo Fort to make sure I don't mistake. Was this wall made out of adobe? Or was it wooden palisade? And what, what side did it face and which side of, you know. So I've, I've been trying to get some of the details right, even though uh, there, there are also monsters and fairies in it, which, of course, I try to get the details I right often, about them. But that's easier because I make up the details myself.
1: I often get, John, because he has an extensive vocabulary and he usually has a word of the day for me. Uh, never have you had a word of the day that I had the least idea in the world. what it meant. So I am counting on you to have a word of the day, and again, not anticipating having any knowledge whatsoever of the definition of this upcoming word. So what is your word of the day today? You
0: know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I have, in fact, been working today on uh, some of my writing tasks, my syndicated column, and a little bit on my books, and I've just, I've felt sort of adulpated and not been able to really oh. get around to looking up a word for you. So I, I apologize. My excuse for not having a word for you is that I am adulpated.
1: Okay. Now, exactly what does that mean?
0: <laughs> uh simply means confused. And actually, it's not as hard to, to decode as you might think. Just think about it this way. You know what the word addled means. I've been addled today. No. And you know no. that a pate is another word for your head, right? So yeah. adulpated just means confused head.
1: There you go. Well, I you know I can see that uh is a pretty good description of you. <laughs> True enough,
0: I, like I own that description. Like
1: yes. Uh John, let's look at what is likely to happen now that we have a split congress. We have a democratic administration running one house or one chamber and a republican leadership handling the other what's going to be the result of that split
0: let me give you an example of what could be the result but probably won't be and then an example of what ought not to be the result but probably will be (laughs) so the first (laughs) one would be um on things like the budget or immigration uh because you've got these two closely divided chambers and a president who I frankly think is unlikely to be a second-term president, either because he doesn't run or because he loses the election, it would seem like lots of people would have a motivation to come up with some sort of bipartisan deal on some big issue. And it could be something like getting the at least reducing the deficits or trying to get some sort of sanity about our border policy or something like that. And you can imagine with both closely divided chambers, 1D and 1R, that they can negotiate this out and people wouldn't love the result because that's what happens when you do legislative compromises. But it would make things better and it would improve the status of the people who make the deal. And the general public would probably welcome either a budget, some kind of serious attempt to address deficit spending or some kind of serious attempt to address the the border mess. Uh, But I don't think it's going to happen because I just think that the people who don't want a deal And there are a few who just don't care about it. They they either don't care about the issue or they would like to demagogue the issue. I think that they will try to sabotage any such negotiations and they might well succeed. Now, what I don't think ought to happen, but very likely will, is that the Democratic Senate and the Republican House will simply focus on their respective investigative powers and just engage in a series over the next 24 months of Uh, rather loud, rather public, saber rattling sort of investigations about maybe legitimate issues, but probably not much. And they will accomplish not very much, but they will make a tremendous amount of noise. So, for example, Republicans in the House are talking about how they're going to investigate Hunter Biden and the Biden family, which actually I think does deserve some investigation, but is already being investigated. But I don't have anything against Congress exercising some oversight when uh, Joe Biden was vice president or subsequently when he was not vice president, but potentially running for president. Did he have some kind of untoward relationship with some of Hunter Biden's business associates around the world? That's a legitimate question to ask. I'm just not sure the Republicans want to do a serious investigation rather than just sort of a payback investigation. And similarly, there was this lengthy, as we know, January 6th commission and investigation, which did delve it deeply into the issue and brought a lot of new information to the fore. And I thought it was, you know, were aspects of it useful, Though I, I didn't think the so-called criminal referral was meaningful at all. There's no such really thing as criminal. It's not the job of Congress to, you know, devise bills of indictment for the you know Justice Department. It's all silly, but that wasn't useless. I think the Republicans will respond by investigating the 2020 riots that happened over much of the country during the summer and in places like Portland went on and on and on for, I don't know, 100 days. There were cons- repeated attacks on federal buildings. It was a genuine series of riots that in some cases might even be called something like an insurrection. Just like the January 6th insurrection, it was never going to succeed and it didn't succeed. And it was carried out by a bunch of nincompoops but it was something that deserves some attention. I'm just afraid that again, it will devolve into theatrics. And similarly, I think on the Democratic side, there will be a, a additional attempts to investigate Donald Trump, in part because they hate Donald Trump and want to the uh, you know, Democrats in Congress just want to keep, you know running up the score against him, but also because they would like him to be the center of attention. They kind of want him to be nominated <laughs> for president again in 2024 because they think he'll be the easiest Republican to beat. So I think both parties have these incentives to spend a lot of time on theatrics and not much time on legislating. I hope I'm wrong about that. I fear I may be right.
1: The Republican Party is uh, sort of at odds with themselves on the role of Donald Trump. He, according to news reports, continues to lose a lot of support. There seems to be sort of a a recurring theme that they would rather him not run again I'm talking about the more moderate Republicans uh what's do you see Donald Trump's uh future as far as uh, a member of the Republican Party and as a potential candidate for uh the presidency again
0: I think it would be foolish to discount the possibility that Donald Trump could be nominated again in 2024 I don't think it's the most likely outcome. but I just don't think you should just rule it out entirely. And I've, one of the few times my crystal ball has been deeply cracked and led me astray was predicting in 2016 that Trump would not be nominated. Obviously he was. Um, that being said, I think Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, if he runs, uh, would be the more likely nominee. And has not, couldn't, it could be somebody else. It could be somebody other than Trump or DeSantis. But I think if you could see, for example, a DeSantis Trump race and not, you know, half a dozen other Republicans getting significant slivers of the vote in the primaries, I think DeSantis would beat him. And I'm not even sure it would be close. That being said, will DeSantis run? I don't know. Lots of people assume he's going to run. I'm not sure that he's made a final decision on that. And if DeSantis doesn't run, does that mean that Trump is presumptively going to be nominated again? I wouldn't assume that either, because there are other candidates who may not have the profile of Ron DeSantis, but are st- still have significant profiles around uh, among Republican uh, primary voters, including other Republican governors. I mean, Glenn Youngkin, for example, the governor of Virginia, might run. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, former ambassador of the UN, would would, would potentially run in that scenario, and others. So I think the Republican nomination is is no one sewn up, but the most likely nominee is DeSantis. And I think if it were a DeSantis Joe Biden race in 2024, barring some strange event or something, DeSantis would probably crush Biden, which the Democrats understand. They either don't want Biden to run, or they want Donald Trump to be the nominee. <laughs> either way, so that's that's how I see it. Why do, why do I do I think that about DeSantis? I, I don't not like some groupie for Ron DeSantis or anything, but just look at his record. He he took uh, the uh, governorship in 2018 with a very narrow margin in a competitive state. Four years later, he's overwhelmingly reelected, wins places like Miami that a Republican gubernatorial candidate really shouldn't have any business winning by a large significant margin, actually. It wasn't even tiny. Um, he's just a pretty good politician, and he's a governor, and governors Know a little bit more about how to run for and be president than other kinds of politicians do, in my opinion. So I think that he's a, a he's a, a real talent. The Democrats would be foolish to discount him. I don't think they are. I think they re- recognize that it's a challenge, and I think that there would be pressure if DeSantis announced that he was going to run, and the early polls were promising, and Trump's campaign continued to flounder around. Like it, I mean, there's hardly even a Trump presidential campaign to speak of right now. He just seems to be hanging around Mar-a-Lago. Uh, calling people on the phone and playing golf. And there's just not much happening with this campaign. Imagine that continues. And after the legislative session in Florida concludes next spring, uh, maybe by the summer, uh, DeSantis announces, uh, I think Democrats would really push uh, Joe Biden to say, look, you, you had a very successful term as president, but you are the oldest president ever you really shouldn't run for reelection, clear the field, and let us nominate somebody who can take on DeSantis. I think that's what they will do. I don't know if Biden will listen, but I think that's a scenario that at least that by the spring or summer would play out very publicly. Um, And there are some Democrats, probably governors again, who would step forward and run in that scenario.
1: Name some of those.
0: Well, I think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, would like to be one, as would Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan. Conservatives, I know, Republicans, I know, snicker at those two individuals, but Gretchen Whitmer, at least, was just reelected in a fairly competitive state of Michigan and obviously has an ability to get some crossover votes among just non-democratic partisans. Gavin Newsom might be more of a stretch, but he does have a lot of ability. He easily beat back a recall effort. Uh, It's kind of hard to imagine a governor of California, a fairly liberal governor of California, winning a presidential race. But there's a lot of things that have happened recently that seemed unimaginable. So let's let's not set that aside. I Actually, think a dark horse, Democratic presidential nominee that people ought to be paying more attention to. And I know he's not like out of central casting or anything. But Jared Polis, who's the governor of Colorado, is a fairly moderate governor of Colorado. He has some very strongly Democratic positions and more moderate positions. Um, He's an interesting candidate for a variety of reasons and could be a a real threat to the Republicans if he were to run. Democrats were to actually nominate him, which I suspect they won't. Might I mention one other Democratic governor who has never lost an election, who by national Democratic standards is a bit of a moderate, and has a lot of political ability? You know who I'm talking about, Roy Cooper. Why isn't Roy Cooper at the top of Democratic wishes for a presidential candidate? He ought to be. He's a successful politician in a competitive state, one of the most populous states in the union. I don't think he could be nominated. And I think that tells you a lot about the state of the Democratic Party in the United States right now. People complain and talk a lot about the Republican Party and what's happened to it in the last several years. Democratic Party has gotten to a point where somebody like Roy Cooper isn't even being considered seriously. And that's a mistake.
1: Our guest is John Hood. We have one final segment coming up. You stay tuned for more of Carolina Newsmakers.
0: Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo.
1: GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time. As in, Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT.
0: You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis.
1: We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, and a frequent guest on our program. We've talked about all sorts of things, including inflation and recession and uh, the dynamics of Congress. Uh, we've talked about... Uh, Uh, well, we've talked about a number of things. We've talked about potential candidates for the uh, role of governor of North Carolina, which is up and coming in less than two years now. I'd like to turn now, John, to something on the international level and talk about the Ukraine situation, because that's turned out to be a mess for Russia, one that they did not anticipate. I think Uh, From what I'm reading, and this is one topic that I I find so interesting, I read everything I can, uh, that is that Russia would like to get out of that mess, but I don't know that they know how uh, to get out with any kind of face-saving. What's your perspective on how Russia could get out of that or, or how that whole situation might end up? I think that Vladimir
0: Putin could get himself out of that if he really wanted to. And I don't, this is not a cheeky statement like, he could just withdraw his troops, of course. I mean, that's true, but he's not going to do that. What I mean is, his claim was that these Russian-speaking minorities in Ukraine were being mistreated, that they really want to be part of Russia. In fact, that Ukraine is a part of Russia, that the distinction between Russia and Ukraine isn't really meaningful anyway. Ukrainians are just sort of wayward cousins who need to be brought back into the fold. So he's got this entire weird ideological, quasi-historical, mostly fantasy rationale that he has offered. He could come up with a equally fantastic conclusion to his fantasy rationale by saying something like, our purpose in this limited military action was to defend our, uh, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We have done so. Ukraine has been punished for their wayward, for their ways, their evil ways, their, their Nazi temptations and so forth, that's the kind of nonsense he's been talking about. He could put a lot of that nonsense into a new speech and say, now that we have accomplished that, we're going to reposition our forces. We are concerned about an invasion from the hegemony of uh United States <laughs> and the uh, NATO allies. So we're going to reposition our troops. We're going to preserve Crimea.
1: <laughs> well, Sorry, guys. well, John is—he—he uh, uh, took it, took a sip of water, and he is trying to get his voice back. Uh, John, are you okay now? I or am. You know I, think, a little
0: bit more? I think my attempt to talk in my in, in Vladimir Putin's voice is really create an allergic reaction or something. But what I was saying is he could invent a a rationale for pulling his troops out and make an argument that he has accomplished his primary objective. He's not going to give up Crimea. And I'm not sure that uh, the Ukrainians would insist that he give up Crimea if they had any sense. They would accept some kind of end to the war at the moment perhaps having reclaimed virtually all the territory they lost, and then some potentially in East Ukraine. And then maybe they negotiate some kind of way in which some of the states in Ukraine enjoy some additional autonomy or there's some things that are done in both Ukraine, the Ukrainian and the Russian languages. In other words, give Putin a little bit of face-saving, but not very much, and certainly not territorial concessions and then negotiate over time the status of Crimea. I think that Russia will not give up its claim to Crimea, and I think Ukraine understands that, even though Ukraine wants sovereignty reasserted. But I think something like that they might have to agree to disagree and negotiate about in the future, rather than Ukraine trying to fight to literally throw the Russians entirely out of the Crimean peninsula which i think is probably beyond their capabilities. It's just my i'm no, you know, strategic expert or anything but that's how i read it. And the people that i do consider to be experts in this field seem to be thinking along similar lines. If Putin really wanted to end this if he thought it was costing more than it was gaining, this was the way he would do it. And he would partly blame the US. He would blame NATO and say, "Look, i've got to reposition forces to defend mother russia against a potential invasion across the Polish border." I mean, it's complete fantasy. But that's what he would say
1: Yeah. john um of course there's also all sorts of rumors about putin's health who's next who will take over russia after putin which can't be too far off one way or the other and how does that affect us and also how does that affect our relationship with india that we talked about earlier i don't think anybody
0: truly knows which individual would become the leader of Russia? I mean, there's some various theories. He's got some court lackeys around him. What's interesting, though, is that a number of them, like the Chechen leader, whose name I forget right now, but that they couldn't possibly be the the sub the, the successor. They they couldn't be the president or the prime minister of Russia. They're not Russians. You know, <laughs> they're ethnic minorities, and that would not sell. That wouldn't make any sense. So I think that uh, Putin dying or somehow uh, leaving his post i think probably by dying would create tremendous uncertainty and and instability in russia there are some who even argue that would be more dangerous which i think is false but some argue that the instability would be more dangerous i still in the long run i feel more optimism about russia than i do for example about china in the sense that russia has a tremendous amount of grievance But its actual power is declining. It knows its power is declining, and everybody else knows that its power, its relative power, is declining. And it seems possible that with new leaders and with a different approach, maybe a less centralized approach to ruling Russia, that there could be some attempt to actually address some of the country's real problems: population decline and uh, economic stagnation, and so forth. too, Too much reliance on fossil fuels. And there could be some possible way that Russia at least becomes less of a pariah and more of a attempting to be developed country sort of uh, sort of power. China is a very different story. They they don't feel decline. They might they might uh, have reasons the Chinese to feel some worry about their decline. Their population is also going to end up going down and so forth. But the Chinese have much more of a sense that it is there, that the century is theirs. This is time for China's place in the sun. China is not simply going to be the dominant player in Asia. It'll be the dominant player in the world. And they have much more confidence, which is more dangerous than the Russians, who obviously have the opposite of confidence. It's one of the reasons why Putin's rhetoric is so crazy. And the Russians are so desperate to claim victory out of a clear defeat. It's because there is a chip on their shoulder and it's the size of a house
1: you go all the way back to general macarthur he's always assumed that china would be ultimately our biggest problem uh, where does india fit into all this how, how where where will india india sooner or later is going to, have to choose a side uh, where will they well, come down
0: well and it's already chosen a side it's against china uh, there's just no question about it i mean you know among other reasons its primary adversary, Pakistan, is a client of China, so so India is not unaligned here. It's just India also doesn't feel very close to the United States. So it is against China. That doesn't mean that it sees itself uh, as a American ally in the same way that Japan does, or NATO does, or various other countries around the world do. And part of that is longstanding and understandable. And China or India is a very large country with its own resources, its own history. and It's important not to try to paint it as just an actor in, a, in somebody else's story. But keep in mind that one of the uh, nations, one of the powers, was so aghast at America's uh, retreat running away from Afghanistan is India, which is, this is their neck of the woods. It was very important for India, for Afghanistan, to become something other than a terror state, a pariah state, uh, another uh, uh, sort of source of instability for India. And they had some hope during the period of American and NATO involvement in Afghanistan that something more normal and a potential partner might actually arise in, in Afghanistan. That is no longer the case. And India has every reason to be aggrieved about that.
1: Tom, we've got about, uh, I guess, four minutes left on the program. Um, what do you think the headlines are going to be for the next six months on all fronts? Uh, we've talked about a lot of them already, but what do you think we should be watching and waiting for? And what is more likely to happen, say, during the next three months?
0: Naturally, the, the, the bit of news that people in, in, in our neck of the woods care most about is inflation and the economy. Will things get better or worse? Um, we're all hoping they get better. I think we're all fearing they'll get worse before they get better. And that'll be the dominant news. I also think that the you're, we've already been in this show illustrating that 2022 cycle is over and immediately everybody started talking about 2024 political cycle. This is sort of the way things have, have developed. Presidential races in particular have become popular entertainment. The Primaries are more interesting than general election because there's more actors and there's more uncertainty who's going to get the nomination. So I think that there'll be a lot of of headlines over the next several months about the presidential race, about the Republicans and Democrats potentially running for president. Here in North Carolina, there will be additional jockeying for position. You know, we've mentioned that a number of statewide offices like lieutenant governor and attorney general, labor commissioner state Supreme Court, these races will all be held in 2024. They'll all be competitive. There are already announced candidates for all of the seats I just mentioned. There are people saying, I'm gonna run for Lieutenant Governor. I'm gonna run for Attorney General. Two Republicans have already announced for Labor Commissioner. One sitting member of the North Carolina Court of Appeals, Jefferson Griffin, has already announced he's running for the state Supreme Court seat in 2024 against Mike Morgan, the Democrat, if Morgan chooses to run again, the incumbent. So we already have announced candidates. In some cases, they've already filed paperwork suggesting they have a committee going. So the political process for 2024 cycle has already started. Now a related, and this is more of an obscure thing, but something you and I care a lot about is the future of the media in the United States. And here in North Carolina, we've already been seeing uh, changes in the way people get their information. That started a generation ago with the internet, of course, but more recently, the economics of the media business have been changing. One of the ways that TV networks in particular, as well as national newspapers, have adjusted to this is to basically treat politics as entertainment. Their entire business model the business model of Fox News and CNN and MSNBC is built on conflict, on colorful sort of extreme characters, loud and yelling, <laughs> and Donald Trump or similar characters. It's like, it's like a soap opera. And uh, so even if it wasn't that interesting to the general public, It is very interesting to the segment of people who keep those kinds of networks in the black, who watch these shows religiously or don't, and and generate the ad revenue. What they want is endless talk about who's going to be the next president. And so that's why we're getting it. We're going to get it on the news networks and in the national newspapers. So whether we like it or not, the economy, which of course is very important, and the international scene, the the fate of Ukraine, and what's going on with China, and the various attempts to constrain it, and then the political race of twenty twenty four, potentially, particularly, particularly for president, those are the dominant headlines uh, over the next few months. And I, I guess it'll be interesting to see if other events intrude. There could be a national disaster or something else. But I think right now, Don, those are the main issues to be the main stories to be watching.
1: Interesting. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, as always, very insightful. We appreciate it. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or listen to the segments that you might have missed, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast or any one of the, two, the four segments, either one. Our program has been produced by Jason Kahn who promises us that we will have another interesting guest next week on this same group of stations all across North Carolina. For next week, have a nice week, everybody.